Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. We do not want advertising to become a scarce commodity. We do not want it to be impossible to tell consumers about our news as a brand. And this is where I would urge the industry, think bigger, guys. Hi, I'm Michael Casson. Welcome to Good Company, where I'll explore how marketing, media, entertainment, and tech are intersecting, transforming our lives and the way we do business at a breakneck speed. I'll be joined by some of the greatest business minds and strongest leaders who will share how they've built companies from the ground up or transformed them from the inside out. My bet is you'll pick up a lesson or two along the way. It's all good. I'm delighted to welcome Laura Desmond, the operating partner of Providence and founder and CEO of Eagle Vista Partners, a strategic advisory and venture investing firm serving the marketing, technology, and digital industries. But more importantly, I'm really privileged and excited to welcome my good friend, Laura Desmond. Laura, thank you for joining me on Good Company today. Thank you, Michael. It's great to see you and hear you and... uh... Uh, very proud to call you a good friend too. Well, there you go, Laura. We've we've had a long and wonderful partnership and friendship. We've worked together. We've been on the opposite sides, never really on the opposite sides. But when we were managing reviews and pitches and things like that, and you were on the other side pitching, it's always it's always puts us kind of at a different space. But through all of that, and through the last gosh, probably close to 15 or 16 years, we've built that friendship and that trust. And you know that I have said for the last several years, so much of our industry seems to turn on words that begin with the letter T. Trust, technology, transparency, talent, transformation. It's crazy how the letter T became the kind of pivot letter in in the alphabet for all things marketing, media, advertising, entertainment, and technology. And, you know, being an English major, I look at things like that and I thought, okay, what was the attraction? But I think you'd agree that those words are the words that everybody's focused on in our industry today. Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, the pandemic has only underscored their importance. And frankly, I think the importance to strip away a lot of the you know, the noise and really just get down to the signal of what matters, trust, um, you know, transparency, uh, technology or tech enabled service work. And, um, you know, look, the pandemic's been a huge crisis, not only on a humanitarian level, but on a business level and health level and every other level we can think of. But there is opportunity in this crisis. And I think it has given us all a, a new perspective about what matters and what you have to do to move forward to, you know, to, to accelerate post, you know, post COVID post pandemic and, and start to renew and rebuild businesses and get back to growth. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting. And you talk about that, Laura, I know well that you're a road warrior like I am. The truth of the matter is we all look at those things fondly on one hand. Uh, I miss some of the travel, but not so fondly on the other hand, you know, I know at different times of your career, you've lived in Europe. You know, lived in Chicago, obviously, but how, how do you feel about that travel cavalcade we used to be on? That you know, those dinners in China, and I don't mean Chinese food; I mean dinners <laughs> in China. It, do you miss it? Yeah. 
Oddly, yes and no at the same time. I think I did it for so long as you have and so many others have. You know, the 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 process, the behaviors, the checklist is just burned into your brain. It's more than just getting back on a bike again. It is like, you know, carved into your soul the steps that you take for every business trip, whether it be, you know, an international flight or a domestic flight or whatever the case may be. I mean, I changed an entire wardrobe to get to, to, to get used to global travel, you know, so many years ago. I just like switched to black and white overnight because there was just no way you had enough room for black, blue, black navy or brown <laughs> shoes, right? So you gotta rely on the good old basic black dress. That's it. That's it. Exactly. You know, I recently flew, flew to New York um, for the bell ringing of Double Verify. And congratulations and, like, and congratulations on that as a happy thank shareholder. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming on the journey with us. And um, it was an amazing journey. And I have to say, you know, being at the New York Stock Exchange and ringing the bell and having a successful open, you know, we, we priced at the, at the top of the range. We had a very nice open uh, day one. We've held that open. We feel, you know, we feel really great about the, the company. And getting back to New York felt like just getting back on the bike again. It felt oddly familiar. Laura, let me let me switch yeah. gears. You know, I, I always marveled at the fact when you were running, you know, a large swath of the, the media operations within Publicis and with Starcom and and all the great success you enjoyed in that role. I always thought of you as an intrapreneur, as somebody who was thinking intrapreneurially uh, within the context of a large organization, whether it was the partnerships you struck with, with the tech companies and, and the aggressive nature, and in a positive way, aggressive nature of how you approach those partnerships based on not just we will buy more from you, but how do we get more strategic? I remember when you made a big deal with Twitter back in the day, and it wasn't based on how much more we're going to spend on Twitter from a publicity standpoint. It was how do we get better strategy? How do we get ahead of the curve with our competitors? I looked yeah. at that as an entrepreneurial move, a strategic move, not just we're moving money. Not, not that that wasn't part of it, but I remember saying this publicly then and I think I even made a public comment about it, that it was a strategic move, not we're going to spend more money with you. Yeah. Number one. Number two, you've now in this part of your career, you've become a true entrepreneur because, you, you know, you're doing this outside. You're doing this with Providence Equity, one of the preeminent private equity firms in the world is an entrepreneur in residence, if you will, as, a, as an operating partner. Is it different? Do you get more satisfaction out of it? Because it's the same principle, right? Just that now yeah. it gets to be yours or in some way yours and, and maybe yeah. there's more proprietary feeling. I know that's a very long-winded question, but you have a right to riff on the answer just as I did on the question. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. And it's a real compliment for you to, to, to cast me in that light. So I, I, I hope my answer is as good as... Um, how you framed, you know, some of my superpowers. You know, I, I just, um, I always imagined myself from an early point in my career as in the garage, having a chance to do some really cool things uh, in the garage, like startup, you know, and founders did and entrepreneurs 
do. Funny you say that and, because where yeah. we really got to meet was around General Motors. Yes, exactly. Right. You, exactly. When I came to meet you the first time in your office yeah. at 1675. Yeah. I think I met you in New York, not Chicago that first time. Uh, yeah. it, it was around General Motors. So it's funny for you to say the garage. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and so I always imagined myself that way. And I think, you know, I was very fortunate to work for enough people and great companies that, you know, to quote an old bo boss of mine, gave me enough uh, rope to hang myself with, if you will. It was the idea of, you want to be a leader, you want to go for it, you want to be an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, go for it and be accountable for what happens. And so I was very lucky with that. And I think, you know, uh, and you know, Jack Clues, uh, I think Jack continued that as I was the CEO of MediaVest and then CEO of the Americas for SMG and then ultimately, you know, ran SMG for a decade. And, you know, there was always this notion of, you know, our company is big enough and good enough to be able to run the business and take care of clients and be um, their best partner and to innovate and to experiment and to try new things at the same time. We always had this rule of 70, 20, 10, 70% right. of our focus would be on the core, 20% of our focus would be on the near or near in innovation and 10% of our focus would be on just go for it, big, wild, hairy and we really did try to, to keep that discipline. And I, I, as a matter of principle, tried to spend as much time, equal time to that 20 and 10, because I thought that's how I'd push the organization along a little faster on behalf of our clients than just kind of spending time in the, in the core. Of course, I toggled back and forth, but you know what I mean. Um, what's been really fascinating as I've stepped out of the world of enterprise is um, is, you know, the same principles of running a company, operator skills, executive skills, are still very much true. But as an investor and a strategist, trying to pick companies, invest in companies, bet on companies, help companies grow, those principles are still true. But um, ultimately, what you're really doing is you're trying to imagine what forces are in the world that will help that company be a success over a period of time, three, four, or five years, because that tends to be the time horizon right. that a private equity firm like Providence Equity is gonna consider. And so you really have to be quite strategic to say, here's our reality today. Here's where we think it's going. What are the bets and the investments and the strategies we need to get there? And then you have to have operator skills to be able to help the executives, the CEO, because I'm not the CEO, help them execute along the way. And so I love what I'm doing now because it kind of is the best of both worlds. It really lets me be that entrepreneur, you know, a, a founder, if you will. But at the same time, I bring all the things I learned from being an operator to it so that I understand patterns. I understand the role of strategy. I understand the role of macro and micro, you know, tailwinds. That can help a company get where they need to go. I think in Double Verify's case, you know, I'm just grateful. I mean, a lot of the initial investment thesis we had turned out to be pretty great. We had some luck along the way too. You know, I, I told you previously. You know, I think that um, you know the the pandemic delayed what we thought would be a 2020 IPO, but in the end, I think we made the most of that time. We actually became a better company. Absolutely. So that as we did IPO, I think we were 
we were a stronger company with even better capability, and I'm proud of that. So I've had a ball across all of those spectrums, but I really do think very much it's like a, it is that garage, it is that moment in time where you get to own something and play with it and be part of something really special. And and um, that's a that's that's an experience that I've enjoyed every step of the way across my career. Hundred percent, and and it's nice to see it paid off the way it did at this point. Laura, we're in an interesting moment in our industry. The word identity is is taking on such an important, it always did, but even more so now. And as we contemplate the world of Apple and privacy and 14.02, I guess, uh, you yeah. know, uh, iOS, uh, and as well as we talk about this kind of massive shift towards all things addressable, you know, it, yeah. it's so funny. Some of our mutual friends have reacted in different ways. There's a school of thought around some of the smarter people I know in the industry that have said, this is just going to make us do our job better. Yeah, It's not a crutch, but we can't rely on some of the things that we were relying on when the world was full of cookies and the privacy issues were turned down a bit. Maybe we actually have to go back to good old fashioned you know, creative marketing and, and how do we get your attention? You know, I've focused on this for the last many years about the loss of serendipity and getting, we, we've all yeah. been so focused on right device, right time, right person, right context, right this, right that. Have we lost sight of the importance of creative marketing and getting the attention? I actually think that once we get through the disruptive process of, you know, um, losing the currency that we've been using the last decade and moving to a new set of currencies around identity and, and personalization. I think once we get past that, we are going to hit another golden era of, of marketing. And, and it's hard to imagine, but I think we will because ultimately consumers do get the benefits of personalization. I think they get the benefits of value exchange. You talked about the T words they understand transparency and they understand marketers want their data. Just be honest about it, truthful about it, transparent about it, and, and, and frame the value exchange. And so I think there's a really good opportunity for us. I actually think with IDFA and you know, the, the Michigas and the heartburn it's creating or Arjadad it's creating from Facebook and others, I think we'll I'll get stick with that too. I'll, I'll, I'll stick with Michigas. That's always okay, a good the Michigas. It's always a good media <laughs> term. Exactly. Um, I think we'll get through that too. And, and by the way, I know there's a massive amount of opt-out, but um, there's there's some opt-in too. And that says a lot as well. And I think apps and Facebook and, and, and marketers will learn about what's what are the ingredients that consumers are opting in for and what are the ingredients they're opting out uh, for. So I think we will hit that golden era. Um, you know, a couple themes here just to, to kind of touch on. I've been amazed at how the lack of urgency I've seen from brands and marketers around the cookie deprecation. When, you know, it's the last two years, it has not been hard to figure out what Google's been wanting to do and what they announced that they would do. I was just amazed at the shock of, oh my God, what is Google doing? I mean, they've been telegraphing it for two plus years. So it, it feels to me like the, the industry was a maybe a little parts of the industry bit asleep, and that surprised me. And marketers, you know, not having a real strong strategic plan around it. I think secondly, it's a huge opportunity for first party data and um, the rise of the CDP. Um, I think some companies in ad tech have done tremendously well with it. I think what Trade Desk has done by 
declaring, hey, we want to be an identity platform and we will be able to onboard your first party data and conduct programmatic in a different way. I think what LiveRamp's done, and you know I'm an advisor at LiveRamp, I think what they've done with the launch of an authentic traffic um, solution is really going to lead the way. And I think people really do need to look at what they're doing there because it's built on what Google says it wants to do, which is authenticated, transparent um, uh, uh, opt-in by consumers. And, and so I think it will lead to a golden era. I think it will lead to more creativity. It will lead to more personalization. And, and that is a good thing. The one thing I worry about, and this is telescoping back, is, and Anne Finucan said this to me a long, long time ago, and she was so right. She was very prescient in that kind of Anne Finucan way. We were talking about the rise of Netflix and the rise of you know, nonlinear and the rise of on-demand. I remember her saying, how is this good for brands that I have less and less ad-supported um, uh, uh, you know, uh, platforms and places to go? And the one thing I worry about is, as we make the shift and more reach is found in CTV and OTT than in traditional linear media, and as we make the shift and the rise of the wall gardens, we all have an obligation to make sure there's as much ad-supported um, uh, places to put our brand messages as possible. We do not want advertising to become a scarce commodity. I agree. We do not want it to be impossible to tell consumers about our news as a brand. And this is where I would urge the industry, think bigger, guys. We have a, our whole industry is rooted in solving problems for consumers. Our whole industry is rooted in knowing what people want, their met needs and their unmet needs. Let's think bigger. Let's make sure that we are the problem solvers for people and their needs, not just, you know, thinking about, oh my God, is the CPM this and is the reach and the target that. Absolutely. Let's think bigger to get back to that golden age that the 50s and the 60s and the 70s um, at one point in time thought of the advertising industry. I think we can't do that if we're smart. I agree, Laura. And I, I'm praying that you're right because it's what will make a difference. It's interesting. We look at how habits have changed. We talked about you know how quick we're going to habituate back to where we were. One of the places that I think isn't going to go back to where we were is the brick and mortar retail space. Yeah. I just purchased something online uh, this morning and not, not that it's a first instance for me, but I'm not somebody who buys clothing online. I just don't. Yeah. That's not, you know, I like to, I'm still old fashioned. I need the showrooming. I need to go in and try it on. And, you know, unless it's something that is a repeat purchase that, you know, you yeah. can certainly do, but we're not going back. And yeah. what's so interesting is the rise of a new level of frenemies. And you know that name and that word is close to my heart. Thank you, Ken Auletta. But the new frenemy is the retail um, media networks. Yeah. Walmart, CVS, Roundell at Target, Walgreens, Home Depot, Macy's, Lowe's, go down the list. They are all now your frenemy. If you're a publisher and you're selling lots of media time to Walmart and Target and CBS and Walgreens and the like, you're also now in fierce com competition with them because yeah. they are now going to be looking to build these billion dollar franchises, Walmart Connect, Roundell, et cetera. They're now your frenemy. And, and that's yeah. an unusual place. You know, the, the CPG companies 
are not your frenemy if you're selling them media because they're not they're not going to be in that business. Maybe on pack, but I don't count that. Um, you know, but all of a sudden, some of your biggest clients are now some of your biggest competitors. Yeah, I'm curious what you yeah. think of that space as we see it. You know, really growing and the bets that are being made. You know, you talk to Janie Whiteside; she'll tell you she thinks Walmart Connect can be a twenty-dollar business. That money's going to come from somewhere. Yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah, and you know, I think uh, you know if you're a, if you're a publisher, you're you're worried about that. But I actually think some of that money is going to it's going to come from the, the the major platform players too. But I, you know, there's no doubt. I mean. You know, several things have been king made during the pandemic. But, you know, first, obviously, with CTV OTT, that's been undeniably, unequivocally king made. We will talk the later second, about what you're binging on. We have to do that. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, let's definitely do it. Uh, the second area is that's being king made is, is all things online shopper commerce, as you pointed out. I mean, Instacart and, and Walmart uh, direct, or Connect and, 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 the, and then the advertising vehicles that come on top of that. Um, I'm actually bullish about that space. I'm positive about it because I do think that these, the three or four of the mega retailers have the ability to give, um, you know, give advertisers, give marketers, and even, you know, the, the, the actual brands that are in their store and online in their warehouses, a really good option beyond you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the big behemoth in Seattle, Amazon. So I, I actually like their positions because I think it will provide more competition um, to what Amazon has been able to do. I also like it because if you are a marketer or you are, a, you know, you, you are actually interested in what people do in terms of what they see and what they buy, um, you know, being on uh, Walmart Connect and and really learning what that platform can do for you can really help you absolutely um, with understanding how people buy your product and how they don't buy and you know back to problem solving again. And so I'm a big proponent because it really has the opportunity to close that loop and flatten that marketing funnel that that you know the, especially the conversion at the bottom of the funnel uh, in a way that will really make I think you know uh, learnings and and effectiveness really powerful. So I'm a big I'm a big believer in that. Now, just because you are a real retailer doesn't mean you're going to become an amazing seller of advertising, right? We know those core companies always don't go Absolutely. together and they're going to have to learn. I think secondly, um, there's still going to be a lot of battleground around data. I think one of the reasons that marketers have gotten frustrated with Amazon is they thought they'd get a ton of data and what they realized, they outsourced their data strategy to Amazon and that didn't get a lot back. Yeah. I think it'll be very interesting to sort of see how Walmart and Rondell and all of, uh, you know, all of those networks treat data and obviously data towards personalization. Because if I know you like white, you know, polo shirts and I start, you know, sending you ads for blue polo shirts because I, I'm going to predict that you want blue next season, you know, that's pretty powerful stuff. So who owns what? Are there intermediaries? Are there safe havens? You know, that's some of what LiveRamp's getting into. Others are getting into it. So I think there's going to be a real battle for data as part of that. Um, but I'm, I'm bullish about the space. I like it. I wouldn't be too threatened if I were a publisher out there. I think there's going to be loads of opportunity to learn and to play. 
and ultimately kind of gets back to what we said. We don't want advertising to be scarce. scarce. We want there to be plenty of opportunities to get messages to consumers. And I think this will help. Absolutely. So Laura, kind of to bring us to a, to a close, which I'm sad because I could spend hours chatting with you about the past, the present and the future. I'm gonna make this my future question. Every year or every couple of years, we have those protestations. This is the year of mobile, television is dead. Every year seems to bring, or every you know cycle seems to bring another bumper sticker that we all say, oh yeah, that's, you know, look over there, that's gone or over here. If you had to come up with a mantra for this cycle, I don't know that I'd say 21 only, I'd say, but this cycle, you know, 21, 22, what would you say the mantra is? I mean, if, if you had to find the mantra and how would that impact your kind of investment strategy? Because you wear that hat with, with your role and partnership at Providence mm -hmm. and also as a member of the community. What do you think this is the cycle of or the year of? I, I think this is the year of the future is here early. You know, I think you could argue, you know, uh, the last two decades of change. And, and I, I think pre-pandemic, we were probably three to four years into the second decade. I think post-pandemic, we're nearly done with that second decade of change. We see it on all the dimensions, CTV, OTT, uh, shopper and commerce, online um, delivery, data, personalization. On every dimension, everything has just come early. And so I think we are at the year of the future is here early. And who's ready? I think who's ready? Who's ready to adapt and compete? And who's ready to move fast? And, and so I think we'll see a bunch of startups and a bunch of really interesting companies trying to solve some of these problems. And at the same time, I think we can can make a few of the larger companies who are able to just get moving on it and just go. Absolutely. So that's my, that's my prediction right now. The way I was taught that you win money in Las Vegas, maybe is to not go, but all kidding aside, the way to yeah. win money in Las Vegas, I was taught was that you put more money on the winning numbers and less money on the losing numbers. And if you yeah. do that on a regular basis, it works out. Uh, Laura, you've made some good bets on the winning numbers. And, you know, here's my hope that you continue to do that. But most importantly, Laura, I hope we continue to be as great friends as we have been over these, you know, past decade and a half, plus or minus. And I wish you only good health and continued success. And I want to thank you for taking the time today to join me on Good Company. Thank you, Michael. And uh, good health to you, too. I'm Michael Casson. Thanks for listening to Good Company. Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. A special thanks to Lena Peterson, Chief Brand Officer and Managing Director of MediaLink, for her vision on Good Company. And to Jen Seeley, Vice President, Marketing Communications of MediaLink, for programming amazing talent and content. Good Company is edited by Jessica Kreinchich.